Thank you very much. So, um, I have come to talk about the um, gender pay gap, um, what the current practice is, and where we might go with this. And I am often accused of being a relentless optimist, and I need to plead guilty to this because I, I think this is a really, really exciting time. Um, I personally have worked in an equality commission in one form or other for the past 20 years, and I haven't felt this level of public engagement and interest in um, an equality issue or a, a piece of equality legislation since the Stephen Lawrence report, actually, since I worked in the CRE, and we had a real excitement around the race equality duty um, coming in and the feeling that that could really um, be a game changer. Um, whether or not that's um, delivered or not is a discussion for another day. But I, I must say, um, the level of public engagement about what is a quite technical um, kind of regulation uh, around equality, the way that it is dominated news, the news agenda, um, not just on a one-off, but on a kind of rolling basis from the moment when um, issues blew up around the BBC and um, their approach to pay, right through to the reporting deadline um, in uh, the end of March this year. So I think it is a really interesting time in terms of the level of public debate, in terms of the level of interest that there has been in this. And I think that presents a real opportunity. But firstly, what I'd like to kind of take you through is what are we doing as the Equality and Human Rights Commission? So we have an interesting dual role. We are the national equality, equality body. We are the national um, human rights institution, um, independent from uh, government. Um, and we have the role as the enforcer um, of the gender pay gap uh, regulations, but also in terms of our duty um, under the Equality Act 2006, we have a role in promoting good practice as well. And we see those two uh, roles sitting very, very clearly um, side by side. So in all of the debate um, and discussion around um, the gender pay gap uh, regulations, part of the discussion was around the ability and the appetite of uh, the AHRC to enforce uh, these regulations. And although there wasn't a specific enforcement mechanism attached, um, we made the best with what we had in a kind of Girl Scout type of way. And um, set out in front of you here is um, the way the powers that we use um, to take enforcement action against um, the uh, private sector employers. So it's not a very quick process, 
but it is a process that sits within our powers and we have a very clear organisational commitment to drive 100% compliance um, through the use of um, our enforcement powers. Although, as you see, they are a somewhat complex flow diagram. Um, so, in terms of the, uh, what shape the reporting took, um, it got off to a really, really, really slow start. And um, we, those of us who were kind of um, interested in this, kind of were there on the portal looking as the numbers trickled in, in their tens sometimes, in their units at other times. And then, as we all suspected, as we came close to the um, reporting deadline, um, the numbers started really rising. And as you see, um, one and a half thousand um, firms reported in the final day. Um, and, um, you know, it was very impressive that the website actually held up, I think, on that final day with the traffic that they had. So what we were left with as the relevant enforcement body was 1,500 who hadn't reported by the deadline. So we kicked off enforcement action straight away. We sent 1,492 letters to um, organisations that um, hadn't reported um, on the 9th of April. And now um, that's a slightly outdated GIF. Um, which was of a few weeks ago that we had 95% compliance. Where we are at as of today, um, so I had a quick meeting with uh, the head of our enforcement team before I came along here, we are literally down to fewer than the fingers of one hand now um, of uh, employers that have not um, reported. And we expect um, that those employers may report. So it may be that we don't actually have to do um, an investigation um, into um, non-reporting. But I like to see this as kind of analogous to the wearing of seatbelts. Because the way, the way that you would measure the success of a regulation around the wearing of seatbelts in cars is whether people wore seatbelts when they were driving rather than how many fines you'd handed out for people not wearing seatbelts. So we are really, really glad um, that we have driven um, enforcement to the level where it's as good as 100% and we have full expectations that it will be 100%. But does, you know, and that, that's fantastic. Um, and the question is, where do we go from here? Um, we, we have the numbers in, so what we're doing now is we are looking at implausible data. So um, I know that um, in the media there has been kind of reports of those organisations that have um, quite helpfully filled in 
fifties and zeros across the board, and it may well be that um, their pay gaps fall very neatly um, within those beautiful rounded figures. However, it's highly unlikely that all of them, that, that, that that is the case. So what we are doing is we are just embarking on our first tranche of um, enforcement action, targeting those employers where we feel that the data that they have reported is implausible. Because obviously, um, there has to be integrity to the data. If it's just about plugging numbers into an online portal, it loses all of its meaning. So, I think now, you know, we're at 100%. I think we need to go back to, what, what is the point of doing all this? What is the point of my legal colleagues sitting um, in an office 10 minutes down the road from here, sending out letters, you know, enforcement letters to um, 1,500 employers and getting them to record their data on an online portal. And I think we really need to focus back at this. You know, it's about transparency. It's around allowing progress to be measured year on year. But fundamentally, the point of this is about driving employers to tackle the root causes of the gender pay gap. Um, and that's the focus that we need to keep, because I think what we have had is, to date, a real focus on numbers. People love to engage with numbers. They like um, 25 being better than 27 for some reason, which you know may, may have no meaning. but. There is, I think, a real danger in focusing only on numbers because what that could do, and we have heard murmurings about this in our engagement with um, employers and um, other organisations, is that through focusing purely on the numbers, what you may drive people to do is to cut their pay gap and to cut it quickly and to cut it by any means that are easily within their control. So for example, some solutions to narrowing your pay gap may be outsourcing all your cleaning staff, um, and um, uh, which would mean that those people who would largely be women would um, have the security of direct employment taken away from them and uh, very likely be moved into um, less secure, probably zero hour contract um, kind of engagement there. But you would have narrowed your pay gap by <laughs> um, potentially worsening the situation of a group of um, workers. Also, people have talked to me about their positive action schemes. Some people have really marvelous positive action schemes that have been really successful in bringing women newly into management. Um, what that means is these women arriving fresh into management are at the bottom of the scale of their quartile. That's widening your pay gap. You could narrow your pay gap by stopping this. Stop all your positive action activity. 
that would numerically nar narrow your pay gap. Um, these obviously are solutions that we do not want to see. Um, and I really think that if we focus purely on numbers and allow that to be the only thing in our kind of field of vision, there is a risk that we could be driving this type of quite unhelpful short-term activity. What we want to see is sustainable change. And we, you know, everybody in this room knows that sustainable change takes time. And if you um, introduce things like um, kind of positive action measures, it could be that your pay gap might actually grow in the short term, but you would be putting in place the foundations to shrink it um, over time. So the Commission last year published um, research on gender, ethnicity uh, and disability pay gaps and a strategy um, that identified kind of clear actions for government for employers and other agencies to take that we thought would drive the sustainable narrowing of the pay gap. And of course, in terms of employers, some of these are outside their control. They, uh, unless you are a very large firm with uh, a really well-developed outreach program, you can't have any kind of an influence over what subjects girls choose at secondary school. Um, but you do have the ability to influence um, some of these key areas. So making all jobs available on a flexible basis, we know that poor quality part-time work is um, a key driver of uh, the gender pay gap. And I think there is a huge amount that um, employers can do to drive positive flexible working cultures. The, the EHRC's own research on pregnancy and maternity discrimination that was published a couple of years ago found that um, for pregnant women and new mothers, 51% of them said that they had experienced discrimination and disadvantage as the direct result of being um, given flexible working. So they had had work responsibilities taken away from them, they had been blocked from training opportunities, um, they had been sidelined um, at work. So what, what we're looking at is not just giving flexible working, but building flexible working cultures um, where flexible workers can flourish um, within the organisation. Also, um, Reducing prejudice and bias in um, recruitment and promotion um, and also bonus decisions um, is a really key part of this. And I know that um, kind of looking at the narratives um, of a number of organisations, what they are talking about is unconscious bias. You know, the kind of buzzword of um, kind of putting people through some online unconscious bias training as a quick fix. 
I would like to direct people to the research that EHRC has carried out and published um, earlier this year on the effectiveness of unconscious bias training, where we looked across the piece and at all the studies that there had been on unconscious bias training, and we found that in many cases where it is used as a sole solution, it is not only ineffective, but can also be damaging in terms of solidifying um, prejudices. And when we talk about unconscious bias, I think we need to take a step back from that because we know there are very conscious biases holding women back. Um, so research that we carried out, a couple of bits of research. Um, some, some of my favorite stats from here is that 70% of employers say that a woman should declare upfront in an interview um, whether she's pregnant or not. And when we followed this um, up with some exploratory um, interviews to kind of understand from those employers why they'd want to know whether a woman was pregnant or not in an interview situation, unsurprisingly, it was all about not giving her the job. So that's why, that's why they want to know. That's 70% of employers. A separate bit of research we did um, with private sector, just senior decision makers, said that 36% thought it was perfectly reasonable to ask women about their future plans to have children in an interview situation. So this is not about being pregnant, it's not about having children, it is about being of a dangerous childbearing age, which for a third of private sector employers would mean that you weren't, you weren't fit for the job. Um, and also, um, half thought it was reasonable um, uh, to ask women if they had young children in an interview um, process. So I think when we're talking about bias um, in recruitment <laughs> promotion decisions, we need to think about the very, very explicit bias that there is uh, and that people are willing to talk about. And I think we all know stories of women who say that they felt the need to take off their engagement ring before they go into an interview because they feel that that could count against them in an interview situation. We want to see reporting, you know, in, on progress in reducing pay gaps. And this is not just about numbers. I mean, for us, we think the narrative is key here. And um, when we're looking at a narrative, I think for us, there are real things that we, we want to see in that narrative. And we want to see an action plan. We want to see targets. We want to see a time-bound focus. But also, what needs to happen is that it needs to include those key drivers of the gender pay gap that we know um, cause this. We want to see clear steps to address recruitment bias, to um, address um, bias in awarding bonuses, uh, you know, sorting out flexible working, but also some of the areas that are perhaps less fashionable, equal pay. We, um, we've looked at a couple of hundred um, uh, narratives 
And in many of them, they start by saying, you know, this, this is a gender pay gap issue, this isn't an equal pay issue. Um, the, we, then we looked and thought, okay, they're, they're talking with authority about the fact that this is, this is certainly not an equal pay issue. Let's see what that certainty is based on. We found evidence of two that had conducted equal pay audits. So <laughs> what we have is um, people talking about this not being an uh, equal pay issue, but we don't see a great deal of evidence that people are actually looking at to see whether this is in fact an equal pay issue. So we want to be part of the solution as well as the enforcer. So we have a national initiative um, working with employers um, that supports um, employers to make the workplaces better for working parents to transform their flexible working cultures. Uh, we've got nearly 400 members and a reach to 1.7 million um, employees. And what we try to do is to provide the tools, the support and the guidance to employers to um, improve and to also to support their peers. We are also working on other areas that we think are key to driving um, improvements in the gender pay gap. TUC research has told us that um, over 50% of women experience um, sexual harassment at work and we know that toxic cultures where sexual harassment is seen as part of the job are holding women back at work and this needs to be factored in when people are talking and thinking about equal pay as well as um, kind of senior level appointments our inquiry into um, women on boards and board diversity found so many examples of nebulous uh, kind of criteria such as fit being used as um, uh, kind of deciding factors uh, in terms of appointments. And we know what fit means. It means you are like me. <laughs> um, so this is people recruiting in their image. So we have provided guidance on how to address that and how to recruit transparently. So what next? Um, well, for us, um, our enforcement approach isn't a one-year thing. We will carry on um, driving compliance um, with reporting. Um, but also, we will support the importance of narratives and try and turn the focus away from just looking at numbers, just looking potentially at quick fixes, but to look at how employers can be supported to target those key areas that we know need to happen. But also thinking about additional reporting mechanisms. You know, we know that um, these uh, regulations need some time to bed down, but I think it's really interesting. You know, we see Sweden where um, businesses with 25 or more employees have to conduct a equality action plan every three years. And um, in Sweden, we also see a gender pay gap even in male-dominated sectors of 3%. Um, we, 
we think it's very interesting to explore um, pay gaps, reporting on pay gaps by starting salary, because we know that male and female graduates have, uh, when they start out, there is uh, differential pay. And we know that the ability to negotiate starting pay is one of the driver of um, pay gaps. We also know that the part-time pay gap between part-time women and full-time men is 38.2%. And we think that an additional requirement to report on a part-time pay gap would really focus minds down on addressing the quality um, of part-time and flexible work, which is the foundation to moving forward on this. Thank you very much. So, so you've indicated your concern about just concentrating yeah. on the numbers. You've given us a, a figure about the part-time pay. Mm -hmm. Would you like to give us that crude and no doubt quite unrevealing figure of all of the reports that were made and what the gap was, what the pay gap was? This is off the top of my head. Yeah. <laughs> off the top of my head, it's around 9%, isn't it, of those who, in, in terms of those firms who reported. Um, but there are huge variations. There are very huge variations by sector. We know that the financial services sector have uh, much larger pay gaps, which is driven largely by discretionary bonus um, awards. We know there are other sectors with much smaller pay gaps, but that may be driven by the fact that um, they are low-paying sectors where there is very little difference between <laughs> the pay of many of Everybody the employees. Points, yes. yes. Okay, Let, let's, um, let's take some comments and questions. You've had, first of all, from Helen, uh, which can be portrayed in many ways, that story, but uh, I always see it as how many times do you have to win the battle mm -hmm. before you actually get the fruits of the war? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you know, we had a House of Commons resolution in the First World War on equal pay. We even had a Sex Discrimination uh, Act at the end of the First World War neither made any difference at all. Well, the sex discrimination, it, it got us a, a woman's, a women's mayor in Aldeburgh. That was the major result of that piece of legislation. <laughs> anyway, that, sorry, it, it's a quite an important person mm. because it's Millicent Fawcett's sister. But anyway, um, enough, enough of that. I'm just giving you time to think now, comments. Yes, please, come down. One thing that really struck me as well while you're thinking of comments is that valuing women's work, because we see this in the gender pay gap. We see that it is driven by the fact that women's work is still not valued. And we see again and again a drive towards um, women and girls entering STEM professions. But, you know, you may question as to whether a more fundamental shift is needed uh, rather than driving women towards STEM is to look at the valuing of um, women's work rather than driving women towards traditionally men's um, uh, occupations. Comments? Questions? I won't say that. Yeah, it's, it's questions. Oh, sorry, sorry. 
I know that most of you are, but will you say your name? Uh, Sarah Veal, former TUC, former EHRC, lots of formers together. So fascinated by all this, and two really, really good presentations, so thank you very much. Just uh, three questions, really, to, to either of you, actually. Um, one is that I don't think either of you particularly looked outside the UK, and I wonder whether work has been done to look at, for example, Germany, particularly other comparable EU economies and what their gender pay gaps are, and what measures, I mean, European law obviously affects all this, but within that, um, what measures have been successful are doing better than us? Is there a particular peculiarity about the UK labour market that's causing this non, seemingly irreducible gender pay gap, which just goes on and on and on and on. Um, and sort of linked to that, presumably, there are going to be some pretty significant Brexit implications. <coughs> So you never get anywhere now by mentioning Brexit, do you? And I know the government said it's going to retain the current discrimination and other employment laws. I don't trust them either, frankly. Um, because we also hear noises off about red tape being smashed and mm. opportunities to reduce the law. I mean, equal pay law is principles based. Yeah. Yeah. Extraordinarily complicated mm. to apply in this country. I wonder, perhaps trying to lighten things up a bit, whether you think there might be some positives if we end up outside the single market, what would you what would you do if they were reviewing the law? Um, if there were to be a non-hostile government, what are there specific things within the law that would make a difference? Is the law a, a leader in the situation? Are all the other things that you mentioned see more important? And then just a tiny one, uh, if I may. Uh, your work only covers employers who have more than two hundred and I can't remember what the proportions are, but the majority yeah, of the employees yeah. in this country are small, and so they're presumably unaffected by what you're doing. And yet I bet there are significant gender problems in the small business sector. I mean, yeah. I know that they'll be very hostile to any sort of attempt to bring them in, but is that something that we factored in? Sorry, that was a very long yeah. series of questions. Very much so. In, in terms of size and in terms of outside this country, I look here at figures I have in front of me. You know, in, in Denmark, you have um, uh, gender pay reporting for firms of 10 or more. In Finland, it's 30 or more. In Sweden, it's 25 or more. So they have bit the bullet and reduced the reporting um, down from um, larger firms. And you could, it would be very interesting to look at the extent to which this is a driver, because I know that, for example, in Denmark, it's this reduction to 10 has been um, quite recent, and it will be really interesting to see the impact um, of that. But I think it's also quite interesting in terms of Sweden, because not only do you have the low threshold, but you also have financial penalties for non-compliance, which um, uh, are enforced by the Equality Ombudsman. So I think um, there is another interesting kind of point for consideration about <coughs> penalties, what the penalties are, and how easily those can be um, applied. Yes,
Yeah, just a kind of a few thoughts, I suppose, on some of the issues raised in your questions. Thank you. Um, I have less of a sense of comparisons with the other EU countries, but what one of the interesting things looking historically um, is looking at Canada. Um, in the Canadian civil service, they had equal pay, like it wasn't even a sort of question about would we would you pay women differently. But what they didn't have was equal opportunity. I mean, we didn't in this country in the civil service, and maybe some don't now either, but there was far less of a drive for equal opportunity. Women were very much ghettoized as the typists, leftists, stenographers. So this was just sort of equality on paper. Um, and yeah, equal pay was kind of moved really for women civil servants in Canada. So I think that's a kind of an interesting, maybe in some ways kind of instructive comparison historically in terms of. You know, as I as I was saying, you were very much saying at the end. You know, equal pay is all well and good, but if you don't have other mechanisms that ensure mm. women's equality and women's um, equal access in the workplace, it, it you know it sort of moot or um, irrelevant. Um, I'm not sure that I have anything to say about sort of Brexit and the law and things like that. Effect other than that, I just kind of want to hit my head on the table. <laughs> um, but one thing that struck me, I think, about listening to your presentation and thinking about sort of one of the points I think I was trying to get to in mind that perhaps didn't quite make was that it's only when we see the Equal Pay Act coming in that we start to see change in mechanisms mm. like this, yeah. which are effectively drivers for change and forcing employers to um, sort of declare, be upfront, and we're kind of creating these mechanism, mechanisms that drive change. Um, and so I kind of I think things like this are really important in those kind of, in, in these kinds of scenarios. Um, I mean, even in the 1960s, the TUC was saying, "Oh, maybe we shouldn't make it mandatory. When you shouldn't have legislation for equal pay, maybe we should get employers to kind of sign up for this um, on a sort of voluntary basis, as though voluntary basis was going to work, given all the decades and decades where it hadn't." Um, and I do think it's interesting, um, this, this sort of idea of cultural change and what you started yeah, with at the yeah. beginning in terms of how much people are talking about equal pay. Um, I would be interested to see the shift that that has in the sort of medium term around issues about equal pay and women in the workplace. Mm. I would like to think that the fact that we're having all of these issues in the news all the time is going to make a difference. Historically, I'm not sure I subscribe mm. to the idea of cultural change trickling down and things changing, but it, it's very interesting moment, I agree. No, 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 no. Hold it back. We're taking over. Can I just add a comment onto the, the country comparison thing? As I think it, we did a piece of research, I used to be at and we did a piece of research while we were there that was an international look at gender diversity. Mm. And one of the most interesting and surprising things that came out of the research um, is that actually the countries that were doing better in terms of senior women, this is Grant Thornton's um, base are small, medium sized mm. companies rather than the really, really big ones. But the countries that were doing best in terms of gender diversity and in terms of senior leaderships were actually developing African, quite often, um, countries. And while our, our kind of theory behind that is that they're not dealing with such a historical legacy of mm. women being, um, being sort of uh, not included in the workplace. So because the, the development of, and the entrepreneurship and the businesses that yeah, are growing yeah. are so much newer, mm. they're not having to Kick white sail men yeah. out of the yeah. world in order to be successful. And I thought it was quite interesting because when I play it back and talk to people and say, well, which do you think are the best ones? Nearly always they say the Scandinavian countries yeah. that we think the Scandinavian yeah. countries are
So I think there's, there's a real legacy problem, as you, you know, as you know. And Oh yes, Scarlet Brown. Sorry, I used to be at King's. I did my PhD um, and then and then lapsed into the real world. Um, but I miss it very much. So thanks for letting me come along. Okay, I'll hold back because that was a comment. Um, I've got a question straight from it. Kate Jenkins, I'm a consumer professor at the and I'm the director of one large voice in the room, which includes women's networks together, and we've been working with the commission on the pregnancy campaign. Very interesting campaign, which has been immensely successful. I think. Um, the question I have is always seems to me in these discussions, we've been talking about institutions, we've been talking about um, legislation, we've been talking about who will be scored, we've been talking about history, but the other thing in the world really is almost always the attitude men take to women in the workplace. And I, I almost never get any approach really to, to, the, to the attitude of a very large which drives a lot of problems which then are not only legacy problems but are very much up to date and will be tomorrow as well. Do you want to comment on that first comment? Yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, it's interesting, I mean, as a historian looking at the records you've got and things like that, it's kind of interesting. You can't, I mean, actually you can quite often get men's attitudes, but they're sort of hidden within union policy sometimes, or you get the suspicion that it's men who aren't particularly keen on the workplace is like and being possible to know that. Um, so yeah, absolutely, all of the kind of ways in which um, appointment panels work mm -hmm. and all kinds of things like that. I mean, I've looked at evidence of women who take the LCC exam and then they suddenly just don't make it to the final candidates. And this is actually when those echelons of the LCC did have equal pay, um, quite interestingly. Um, so yeah, totally agree. Yeah. Well, I think my question is, what do we do about it? Yeah. I mean, we know that this is there, but the institutional solutions don't seem to me to be it. I think there is something about um, transparency that doesn't allow a place to hide. If you have sufficiently good data and sufficiently good reporting, I think that can change things. I think. There are also steps that you can take, and I know this is not kind of analogous for um, kind of uh, usual interviews, but we know that particular um, orchestras in America totally changed their gender profile by having people audition behind a curtain. Um, so there are mechanisms that you can use to debias recruitment, but I think. Um, also, what we need to do is, um, we know that a key driver um, is motherhood and the disadvantages that um, come stem after that. I think there is real work to do in terms of equalising childcare. I know there are real issues around shared parental leave and the financial incentives um, to take it up. But in terms of where we could move to, I think there are real opportunities for legislative developments there in terms of having use it or lose it leave, in terms of having um, payment that is a real incentive to take up shared parental leave to shift. And I know, I know we're talking about cultures, but it, I think those are the kind of things that may help um, shift the cultures. But I think there's something as well to go back around voluntarism, because we know 
that volunteerism doesn't really work? I mean, I again, I don't have the figures off the top of my head, but think at report. Anybody got the figures? Is it 300 firms signed up and seven reported their gender pay gap under the voluntary um, arrangements? It, I know it's it's less than 10. You know, it's um, so. Yes, you quoted the um, safety, uh, the safety yeah. Act. Yeah. And of course, there is an approach that says the way to get people to wear seatbelts is just to tell them that they've got to wear seatbelts. No arguments. Doesn't matter how mm. big your car is or yeah, how big yeah, you yeah, are, yeah. you wear it. Mm. Now, the, that is not a voluntary approach, but it's quite helpful if you want to get people to wear seatbelts. It might have applications in this area as well. But there are quite a few men here. There was a challenge there about men's attitude. Does anyone want to comment on that? Because if you don't, I do. <laughs> yeah, Michael. I'm just saying, sorry, Michael. Say, 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 oh, sorry, Michael. Um, this is a different um, My mother, on her deathbed, said that the most important thing she'd done with her life was to raise two uh, responsible, functioning adults, my brother and myself. Now, what she'd also done, she'd also been a nurse, she'd been a nurse for many, many years, but the most important thing for her was that she'd made stable home. I think what you're leaving out of your analysis is that many, many women believe that making hope is the most important thing they can do. Uh, I, I think it's not just a, a matter of the patriarchy, it's not just the fact that men are trying to hold their I'm not denying any of that, please don't understand. But the fact is that generations of women, and certainly my mother's generation, you know, um, certainly believed that their main role in life was to make a stable home. And if you look at you know, the families in the 1950s and the 60s, most of them were nuclear families of the traditional type. I mean, I remember this is only David Evans, I apologize for that, but at school, I do not remember any of my friends coming from divorce or separated mm. houses. Now, maybe the households underneath the surface were terrible places for domestic violence and hypocrisy. I'm not denying that either. But the fact is that the perception that many women had was that they were creating stable homes for their husbands and for their children. I genuinely believe that. Okay. I, I, I don't think one can test that perception. You know, it was a genuine... Yeah, yeah. We made, Michael, how does just, it take us into an answer to the question? Well, only the, the, the point I'm making is that it's not just a question of men. I think you, you have to... What you left out of your, your discussion was women's perception of their own roles. And, and there's been a shift in the way that women perceive their own roles. And for my mother's generation, and not, not, not all of them, of course, because you had the union campaigns and the placards, and I'm not, I'm not making crude generalizations, but for many women who may get left out of the analysis, having equal pay wasn't particularly important for them. I mean, maybe, you know, I, I'm not saying this is a good thing about you, I'm just making a comment. But every time they were asked, they said it was.
Michael, thank you. Right. Behind you, yes. No, I was going to say. Name first, sorry. Yeah, sorry. yeah, yeah. No, name first. Um, we are also just generally. Yeah, just, just give your name. Oh, sorry. sorry. My name is Flora, which is um, a lawyer. Um, I mainly practice um, human rights law. Um, we are mainly discussing pay in the form of workplace, which doesn't, you know, um, cover whether women should be paid for what they're actually doing domestically and all those other roles. And I think that would also factor in, in terms of, you know, even if women think um, their work at home is highly valuable, then if they were given an option to get paid for their work at home, then they probably would choose to get, you know, paid, um, paid highly for that work. But basically, to get remunerated at the same value they would at the workplace. But that's not even factored in, in this debate, which, you know, I think that's a big, big mistake. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Um, I mean, I find it fascinating, actually, that the kind of wages to housework campaign was one of the demands of the women's liberation movement and um, didn't particularly get anywhere or certainly compared to some of the other demands of the women's liberation movement. But it is now actually something that international organisations are starting to talk about for exactly the kind of reasons that I think are behind your comment about the amount of free labour effectively that they are contributing and what that would cost in terms of the GDP of particular countries and particular communities. Um, if I can just come back on the um, the idea of women wanting to raise families, absolutely yes, of course, I wouldn't ever deny that. And of course, you know, you do have a number of women who want to do that, but as is it Kate points out, you know, women are socialised from age two or three before that even possibly do um, you know that is what they what they want to do. Employers also have marriage bars in this period. The marriage bars have disappeared a lot after the World War. And then you have the kind of tale of the expectations that women will leave the workplace when they marry. Um, but I think I think we have to think about this in terms of it's not an either or. Women don't go into the workplace thinking I'm only going to be here for a few years and then I'm going to get married. I mean, some might, but some might never find somebody to marry. Some might absolutely have a terrible marriage and have to leave for all kinds of reasons. Um, Pat Thane's work actually on the 1950s, the idea of the nuclear family and this golden age of the family, she does a really interesting work actually pointing out why that's not actually the case and looking at single motherhood and lone motherhood and all of the kinds of issues that women face. Um, but if we do look at women in the workplace, those who end up in the workplace for entire careers, equal pay is one of the things that they really want um, and are consistently campaigning for. So it's not that I have left these women out of the analysis, the women who want to be um, homemakers. I absolutely acknowledge that that's what they want to do, um, that's where they feel comfortable, that's what they, where they want to make their contribution. But I don't think any woman necessarily at the age of 16 goes into the workplace with a plan and thinking, oh, I'm going to leave at this, um, at this point. So I think that I think that by talking about equal pay and talking about these issues, we're not negating women who make different choices, but we're talking about the absolute relevance and necessity for them to have equal pay for the kinds of reasons. And 
can I just say, in real time, I have found some statistics um, in terms of a generational shift, because stats that came out last year around millennial fathers um, showed that over half, so 53%, want to have a less stressful job to, so they can spend more time um, on childcare, and 48% um, said they said that they would take a pay cut in order to get a better work-life balance to support the more involved parenting that they want. So I think, I think there is a real kind of generational shift, not only in terms of women, but also in terms of fathers and the involvement they want. And again, anecdotally, what we have heard from older fathers um, is that when they become grandfathers, they, look, they are looking back and they are seeing what they missed and regretting this. And we are doing some um, events linking up younger fathers and um, older men um, to kind of have some intergenerational exchange about what they think their um, reflections on kind of parenthood are and what they want to see changed and what support that they want to have to be more involved um, in parenting. Yeah. Very good. It's uh, Asian website. I'm, I'm a lawyer as well. I'm just a sort of comment. Um, I'm, I'm astonished that in 2018 lawyers are still thinking really appropriate to ask interim candidates about pregnancy, childcare, yeah. yeah. mm. tensions as to families and so on. Um, I, I was last involved in interview training probably 25 years ago, and I think most people thought then that was the territory. Mm. Observation is it's a arise arise like you just said about as a recent grand grandfather myself that clearly there is there is a cultural mm. change to some extent going on intergeneration, different by generation generation below. And that led me into this thought that, that if one looks at Sweden, Denmark, Norway, uh, I'm not familiar with the African experience which was referred to earlier, there there is a there is a different attitude in society, not only to these issues, but more generally, there, there is such a thing in society. They haven't gone down the neoliberal route that we have embraced in such a detail in the last 30 40 years. Uh, I'm, I'm just wondering, really, as a lawyer, are, are there limits to what the law can achieve? Do we, do we need to be thinking about uh, broader social change and going back to a Shall I answer from the view of a regulator um, <laughs> first? Because I just think, you know, you look at the Nordic countries, you look at um, the kind of balance of childcare there, that is based on um, great legislation, I think, in terms of uh, leave being parceled out for fathers and um, the generous pay for kind of uh, father's, father's leave. And I, I wonder whether there is a chicken and egg situation in terms of um, societal change, what, you know, whether you need the legislation first. I always think it's very interesting in terms of equal marriage. Um, I think the government there took a really leadership role in introducing um, equal marriage. And I think societal change has come in its wake. And 
Um, I'd be really interested in your uh, perspective as a historian because I think, obviously, from from a regulatory perspective, we we, we love a good bit of law. Um, Let's hold it, hold it back. I, I don't think we really have a proper answer to the point about male bias. Um, I mean, it would surprise me if any of the men here hadn't got a dozen, a hundred, a thousand examples of male bias that they have seen. So I just wonder how you get rid of that. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, if you want to know about male bias, you need to talk to someone who spends a bit of time in sports clubs or in a locker room. Mm -hmm. That was the great excuse that Trump made. Do you remember mm -hmm. after his uh, remarks, for which he seems to be ridiculously proud? Men, by and large, are not engaged in this issue at all. It's not just that they are biased against women. They're not engaged in an issue at all, so they don't usually have a view about it. Um, and if, like me, you write books on women's rights, and you try and talk to men about what you've written, first of all, you get to why you're interested in this stuff, John, is the first thing I get. But once I get beyond that, the depth of knowledge is uh, well, paper thing, frankly. And the amount of time that they spend thinking about it. So they just react. A lot of this bias is just on instinct bred into them in the same way as you, Michael, were saying, well, women are conditioned in a particular way, men are conditioned in a particular way, and it comes out during the appointment process. Of course, what they were saying, not that they're going to ask them whether they're pregnant, but they really like to because they don't want to employ women who are pregnant. It's very straightforward. Anybody, anybody any man, go on. Jim, isn't, isn't it also the case, so Jim, isn't it also the case that the last, the context, the last 20, 30 years have been um, a period of uh, bias, if we call it, against all workers, male and female, with the contraction of the British working class has been stagnant, as we know. And one of the casualties of that, clearly, was the, uh, the movement for equal time, which started uh, Dagenham um, uh, machinists and, and a number of other cases, trying to remember. And, but that's all, that's all gone down the tube. You talked about priorities, and clearly um, it isn't an excuse for that. But, the reliance on legal remedy. I mean, apart from the money that some lawyers have made from it, uh, taking it right, right through um, court to the House of Lords and, and the European Court, I mean, has been minimal by comparison with the legislation that's been brought in. Um, so, in, in a sense, um, I, I think that we, we seem to be, as men and women, going around around in circles. And, and why pick out just one pattern? Because um, men have been suffering. I mean, look at the pay, the pay rises haven't, that haven't been had in the last 10 years. The figures uh, for both male and female. I think that we do need to figure that, sort of bring that into the picture so that we can see what the wider, but rather than just, I got the impression that in a certain time that um, 
and unions were to blame, which may well be true in terms of their prioritizing. But we never get a critique of managers. And, and the, the sheer change that's taken place in those 30 years has been a shift in power to management. Well, I was encouraging you to give a critique of my own managers. <laughs> So, um, my name is Hilary Cooper, I work for the Big Tech Cooper Finance Foundation, which is focused on the financial services sector that I'm very interested in general faith issue analysis of the same, most of which I work part time. So, I'm not sure, but I don't the women in finance chart, which I'm sure some yeah, will be yeah. aware which has been noted um, by the Guardian for the Sea Across the Sector, actually um, perhaps it's men where it hurts most, which is pay and performance. And one of the things about that, and half of the sector is now mm -hmm. to that, is that senior managers are given diversity targets and their yeah. performance bonuses are dependent on hitting those targets. Now that's that's mm -hmm. that's you know that's a a um, performance-related way of changing attitudes, but I, I know that there's research, and I think you may be involved in that, um, on on whether the women in finance charge is effective in, in bringing about that sort of change. It'd be very interesting, if it were, to see what it would be seen like being more generally. That's a point on that. I have, I'm really interested in what you said because you started. There wasn't much mention of the motherhood gap, and then you mm -hmm. started talking about it and. A lot of commentators now, I think, are talking about um, the need to equalise childcare responsibilities mm. to try and um, overcome the, the, the discrimination of there being a lot of gap, which I think is really important. And we talked about perhaps legislation on, you know, take it or leave it, take it or lose mm. it basis. Um, one of the things that people have said to me is that there is an issue around um, men being offered the chance to take childcare leave. Because when women take maternity leave and maternity pay, which I did, my pay was made up by my employers yeah. very generously. I think the situation at the moment is that that doesn't happen yeah. for men. So the, te the, the take it or lose it argument's fine, but unless you. I mean, could yeah. that be a, an actual discrimination issue that could be a better Well, there are, there are questions around, and there have been cases around um, the kind of pay for um, shared, shared parental leave um, versus uh, kind of enhanced uh, maternity pay. And um, although, you know, in some cases there has been kind of clear disadvantage, we as a commission are encouraging firms to level up yeah. because there is yeah, a, a concern that, that you will yeah. level both down. Absolutely. And um, in uh, kind of response um, to these challenges. And I think in terms of that use it or lose it period, we also want to see that going hand in hand with um, reasonable uh, kind of financial um, kind of incentive uh, yeah. rather than what we have at the moment. But also I think there is a cultural point of that because what we've heard again anecdotally is that men don't want to be the first. They don't want to be the first one to take shared parental leave. They don't want to be the first one to ask for flexible working because of um, their kind of childcare commitments. And I think the are, there is a lot that uh, employers can do around normalising that, around starting the conversations 
um, with uh, fathers, you know, with expectant fathers, when, you know, when they find out that a, a man's partner is going to have a child or they're going to adopt, um, that they initiate that conversation around shared parental leave about flexible working with the expectation that your working life will change because of your parental responsibilities. Yeah, very much so, very much so, and I think... We could uh, Peter up, because uh, it's one of those sort of issues that men usually keep their head down. But I, I think... No! Uh, I want to say something in support of what Michael said. I think, firstly, in, in terms of uh, the sort of historical approach, I think there's problems about sort of having a anachronistic way of looking at history where you go back and assume that people in previous periods think the way we do. And I think if you if you see history as just some sort of institutional conspiracy against women, you neglect the fact that a lot of women in early periods of time were strong supporters of things like the male breakdown model and stuff like that. And what we've seen gradually is a shift of opinions. Now, I just read Beatrice Webb's article, and you can see how a woman like Beatrice Webb was really trapped by the society she was in. But Beatrice Webb wasn't typical in society, was in the show. It's quite possible that some women found those societies very difficult, whereas other women's, you know, thriving. You know. So that's, that would be the sort of historical concern. The contemporary concern is that we're presenting a very simplistic view of employment where the only problem is discrimination. Whereas it seems to me that there are, there are quite major complexities mm -hmm. to the female participation in the labour market. And I'm thinking about, I'm getting a real bit more, I'm thinking about Catherine Hagen's work on preference theory, where she argues that there are three different types of women. It's a, you know, it's a model. She says there are strong career women, there are, there are strong family-orientated women, and there's women that are judging in the two different positions. And it seemed to me quite an intelligent description of a lot of the tensions that are going on here. And, and for instance, when we're idealising Sweden, my understanding of it is in Sweden that most Sweden, Swedish labour market is very segregated. Mm -hmm. Most of the women are working in the public mm -hmm. sector, not that many in the private sector. Presumably, the heavy career women go into the private sector, the ones that are doing the other two things go into the public sector. Uh, and that links also to issues of family strategies. I mean, we're talking here as if women are individuals that are not connected to anything else, whereas women are parts of families. And families develop, I mean, I did some work on this 10 years or so ago, families develop strategies whereby they balance the, the work of the different partners. In so I'm, I'm sort of backing up Michael a little bit, but also saying there's a more complex problem here. Well, do you want to, uh, uh, 
respond to the idea that you've simplified history? <laughs> yes, I would like to do that in many ways. Um, uh, let's start. Um, there are absolutely, throughout the years I've spent looking at these sources and the years I've spent thinking about this, there are absolutely large numbers of women in workplaces who are talking about the discrimination they face, the lack of opportunities that they have, and they also know that they are, co they are existing in a society that tells them that you are going to be a, a wife and a mother whether you want to or not. That's the kind of message they get from uh, society. Um, they're also um, having to endure all kinds of what we would now term microaggressions in the workplace from managers, from male colleagues, and yes, again, as I said in response to Michael's comment, there are absolutely women who want for their primary occupation to be wives and mothers and are happy to go and do that. But the idea that all of the other women in the workplace, and of course, you know, they're different ages at you know, different points, they might leave the workplace, they might go back in, they might be women who are there for all of these years, they are absolutely facing these issues and pushing to change. So the idea that we are somehow being anachronistic or looking for feminism in the workplace when it's just not there, I'm afraid it's just not true. Um, I think there's also something about family strategy. I mean, I take your point that in, in more recent years it has become more possible with the rise of flexible working, part-time working, and you know, certain employers having shared parental leave and uh, such policies. It certainly has become more possible to plan sort of a family strategy for childcare, but we are talking in the longer term about um, a country and a society that assumed that women would do the homemaking and the child rearing for free, and that it would be the woman's job, and therefore the man would be in the workplace, and this would be the woman's job. And it's only much more recently that we've had the flexibility in terms of policies and shifts in thinking to actually start thinking through some of these issues on a practical level. Um, somebody mentioned cultural change and how we enact it, and if we need sort of mechanisms such as laws or reporting policies and things. Um, I just wanted to mention there's a very, very interesting book by Alma Murdoch and Diego Klein, who were both sociologists, one actually from Sweden, one from the UK, um, or from Czechoslovakia originally, she was a refugee, etc., but she eventually settled in the UK. And in the 1950s, they're talking about actually, wouldn't it be really interesting if we could have a flexible workplace? And they don't use that phrase, but that's what they're actually getting at, that would allow men and women to make decisions for their own families in terms of whether they want to work, um, who, which of them is going to work, how long they're going to work. They're suggesting this in about 1956. So I both love them for it and then think, man, it's taken yeah. us till about yeah. the 2010s to really think about this on a sort of cultural, national level um, in any great depth. So yes, whilst we may, you know, we may have women in the past who, in the majority of them, may well have wanted to be wives and mothers. They're coexisting. They're existing in a society that predetermines that they are going to going to do that, and they're having to face all kinds of barriers around childcare, being able to return to work, all of the kinds of um, assumptions, stereotypes, discrimination in the workplace that I've talked about and that you've alluded to as well. I'll take two more comments. <coughs> there they are. Alice. I'm Alice Hood from TC. Um, I'm trying to resist the temptation to get into the points about family strategy and male bias, except to say 
I'm so pleased you've introduced this sociological dimension to talking about it because none of these decisions there remained in a vacuum in terms of how mm -hmm. girls from, I would argue, day one are socialised into the roles that they are effectively in this day and age playing in society. And the decisions that families have to make around family strategy based with the reality of it is the woman who's taking a period of maternity leave and has to reintegrate back into work. It is still more likely to be the man in the family who works more and on the flip side has less, probably less access to flexible work to help negotiate that strategy. Um, but I actually, I wanted to come right back to something Sue said quite early on about this as a kind of potentially pivotal mm. moment and I was really pleased that you spent some time in your presentation on the need to kind of understand the complexity of the drivers mm. of the gender pay gap and steer away from a focus on headline numbers and, mm. and we too are really nervous about the potential unintended yeah. consequences of companies just looking to cut the gap yeah. as fast yeah. as they can. Um, I just wondered if you both reflect a bit more on how we capture that moment of public and political interest in the issue, but in a way that reflects the, the complexity of the issues and the need for really sophisticated solutions. And part of that, I think, comes back to how can we improve the, how can we make this government to improve the regulations mm. and get those extensions to things like parts of pay gaps and so on. But also how can we kind of maintain the public interest so that there is that pressure for things like more equal parenting, I'll be answer. I'm going to take one more contribution and then ask both of you to make closing remarks. Thank you, Adam. My name is Marcus Turner. I'm from the GMB. Um, I think the challenge was what are men still getting wrong and why is it happening? There's only five minutes left, so I think it's a bit taller than that. You'll speak ahead. I think, well, no, I'm not going to criticize them, but I think this point about the social side of work is really mm -hmm. important, especially what happens after five o'clock. Um, and I think there's a lot of social pressure on them to act in ways outside of work mm. that it, they wouldn't now probably in the workplace. And those sorts of social environments can be exclusionary, and mm. um, especially when there's a sense that the important decisions are still being made there, mm. by the time you get to the panel and so on. Um, the decision on who's going to be hired and so on to be made. And so when I've done quality training, it's, it's all been on obviously policy access in relation to what happens in the workplace mm -hmm. and so on and, and the hiring process it doesn't really begin to address the substantive sides um, of what's happening and, and the second point is, is uh, the last point uh, so I, um, I think so on was um, the perhaps the fact of disability and um, we know yeah. that um, men are much more likely to receive diagnosis for certain conditions mm -hmm. than women and the disability is one of the other important drivers of pay gaps um, and it seems to be a problem that starts in primary school or earlier and uh, I, I think the report that the EHR, EHRC did earlier this year which you referred to and trying to quantify and um, what those pay gaps look like on quite a granular level is incredibly helpful and, and useful. Um, I don't know how we could um, look at how those factors play together and by the way I wonder whether the like Women's, uh, or less likely for women to be diagnosed with certain conditions 
some extent something they can So, in terms of wider pay gaps, um, I think, as you, as you rightly say, we've published um, our strategy and also research around ethnicity, disability and gender pay gaps. And I think looking at the impact um, the uh, the uh, gender pay gap uh, reporting regulations have had on you know employer engagement with this, I think there is a very interesting case to be made around um, collecting and reporting on um, disability and ethnicity data, which would then allow us to unpack the the similarities and the different drivers um, that influence um, the ethnicity and disability um, pay gaps and also potentially dig into those intersectional issues um, which I think which are um, hugely important and I would say watch the space we have a piece of research which is due to be um, released in around a month which looks at what employers are doing at the moment in terms of collecting that ethnicity and, ethnicity and disability data, what um, good practice there is, but also what would motivate them to um, collect fuller data and report on it. Thank you. Yeah. Helen, closing remarks. Okay. Um, thank you for your comments and the question. Um, really helpful. Um, and I'm not sure I have a sort of full answer to all of this, but I suppose I wanted to sort of think about two things. And one is the shared parental leave, which has come up an awful lot. Um, as I think what that would do, and if we're talking about legislation and all of those things, um, we can talk about that and, as you say, sort of getting employers to really be a lot more active in terms of suggesting this. Um, that then means that women are no longer seen as a higher interest in the way that they still are today. Mm. If we go back to the 70% of your private employers yeah. who want yeah. to ask, etc. Women are no longer seen as a hiring risk because it's just as equally likely that men might take a, a period of leave as well. Um, it would do an awful lot for the kind of pay gaps and the kind of opportunities that women have in the workplace. Um, on the broader question of sustaining momentum, um, I wish I knew how we could do that entirely. But one thing I quite often go back to, and when I'm talking with my students as well, is something like the Everyday Sexism campaign, mm. which started as a Twitter account and then became a book and then was sort of speaking towards and lectures. If you're not familiar with it, I really hope you all are. If you're not, please look at Everyday Sexism and look at the hashtag. Because what that did brilliantly was highlight the amount of everyday sexism and harassment and catcalling and just the just the kind of verbal abuse that women are subjected to in day-to-day -day lives. And what that did was make me, certainly, and many other women think, oh, it's not just me, it doesn't just happen to me, I shouldn't have to put up with it, this is structural and it's endemic. And I think what it did also was highlight to men that this just isn't a one-off and actually help to educate men. We've still got a long way to go on those sexual harassment issues, obviously. But it did help to educate men that actually this isn't okay and it does happen to every, every woman and it's happened to women that you know. And men need to think about the issue of sexual, sexual harassment and other issues more. Uh, other issues that affect women more. So I think if there's something like that, like the momentum of the everyday sexism mm -hmm. campaign, I think that's really interesting as an example. I don't know that it's necessarily the answer, not a Twitter campaign or anything like that, but I think 
the dialogue that that campaign opened is really important. So if there's a way to sort of model that for issues like equal pay and other things in the workplace, I think that could be really interesting. Thanks very much. I, mean, I can't think of a much better closing line than to recommend to everybody, including the men, to read the law of Bates. That exactly. is a great education. A great education. Thank you both of you very much. Thank you. Thank you both for your presentations. Mm -hmm. And we've just about got to 8 o'clock. So thank you all for coming and thank you for your uh, navigational skill in actually finding <laughs> 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 It was a challenge. I think there is something interesting about that point about that legal remedy isn't everything. So I think there's something about the individual legal remedy isn't the answer. I think there, there is the key. If we have things dependent on individuals coming forward, then things are sure to fail. You know, it's, uh, um, Oh no, it's really, really interesting to have to step outside my, my regulatory bubble uh, once in a while. Um, just to spoil the commission's evening a little bit further, could we remember I think there's something interesting in terms of male harassment behaviour in terms of the bystander. I'm quite interested in this report. We, I've just done that for the Chartered Banker oh. Institute. It's, just, it's based on but but it's really interesting. I was having a discussion today around um, the women in finance, right, right? And the fact that some employers are seeing kind of gender pay gap reporting and this and that. It's the same thing. They could they could almost cut and paste what they are doing around that into their gender pay gap narrative, exactly. and it will be pretty much on the nose. Exactly. That's right. And at the moment, obviously, the financial services sector is abysmal, and yeah. Jane Nangardia and yeah. the rest of them are brilliant yeah. trying to tackle that. But yeah. it just occurred to me, well, you know, maybe that's a bit generalisable. I mean, you put it into yeah, men's but performance that, that's the thing with senior managers' performance Measuring, measure money to it. Targeting. Those are the two yeah, things. Exactly. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> We're hoping to have Jane. I had got Jane Angardia penciled in to do our annual lecture oh, really? on the 25th of October or something. I'm now her officer saying, oh, I'm not sure. But I'll, if you if if you've got a card, I'll invite you to that. Um, yes, I'd be really really interested. Bear with me. Um, so that's just a small piece of work we did, but um, you know, it's it's quite interesting. Great. Thanks very much. I think I think the thing is, you know, there is. Thank you. There is a lot of focus at the moment on the financial services sector, and right, yeah. rightly so. Yeah. But the thing is, if we can make it work there with 
by plaiting together the work that is being done rather than uh, kind of uh, firms seeing it as kind of parallel tracks, exactly. parallel burdens. Yes, yes exactly. That yeah. If because, the, I mean, most of the evidence on the gender pay gap is actually to do with seniority anyway, which is yeah, what the yeah. Women Finance Charter um, is trying to address. So, you know, it is the same thing. Yeah, and, and I'm, you know, we know that there are HR departments having their arm twisted to reputationally reduce exactly. their pay gap. And that's really important. And, you know, and also for banks. I mean, everyone's a customer of a bank. Yeah, so, yeah. and there is now some evidence emerging that millennials at least, you know, it used to be whether, you know, their banks were good on green issues and environmental issues. This is a potentially a brand issue. Well, it's really interesting as well. I was talking to this headhunting head firm and they were saying that they have heard of um, headhunters calling senior women um, in firms that have a large pay gap and saying, look, look at your firm's pay gap. Wouldn't you like to come and work in a firm that has a, a better pay thing. gap? They, yeah, they, yeah. They're obviously so more they're invested in women. Yeah. They are yeah. using well, it as a lever. Yes. Yeah. And we're doing some interesting polling um, that is looking at size of gender pay gap and employer activity on gender pay gap and what happens, what impact that has on the psychological contract yes, of the yes, employee yes. and also job-seeking behaviour. That would be really interesting. Yes, it would. Um, I mean, clearly in the BBC and, um, and other places in, in the entertainment industry is having yeah. a massive impact on the psychological contract. People like Claire Foy, for there instance. There are so many angry women and yes. that is a great thing because yes, I think yes. this is the thing in, in answer to yeah, yeah. Alice is how do we do this it's like you harness the anger yeah, I mean, the real so anger that there is out there amazing, yeah her, her yeah because she's such a nice person that, you know, I do, and, and of course that comes out to the long face issue. No, I So long, I had about five minutes. So, 